You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hello, Resonate. My name is Matthew Young. I'm the site pastor over in Moscow and excited to be here with you today uh, as we wrap up the book of Jonah. Um, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I used to drive around with my dad. He drove this old like 80s model, late 80s model Ford pickup. And uh, especially in the summertime, I'd find myself riding around with him a lot. Sometimes we go to lunch together. And, uh, and then in the evening, he'd take me to baseball practice or something like that. And he'd always listen to the radio, and he always listened to this one station. Uh, back then, it was like categorized as easy listening. It was like elevator music. And, uh, and so um, it's funny how I thought it was really dumb then, and now like those are some of my favorite songs today. But anyways, that's a side effect. Um, we'd drive around, and at noon and at about 5 o'clock, there was this radio station, this radio program that would come on um, and, uh, by this guy named Paul Harvey. And he would have, it was called Paul Harvey news and comments. So he would report on the news and then he would kind of give like some extra, some extra comments on it. But he also would do this segment that it was called the rest of the story. And I, I loved when I was riding with my dad and the rest of the story, Paul Harvey's, the rest of the story would come on. And, uh, and so it would start off usually at noon. He would, he would tell a story and he began to like talk about a, a character or a person and, uh, and he would leave some key details out, like the name of the person or an event in history. And he wouldn't fully disclose exactly everything that was going on, but kind of give some tell some of the story around, some of the backstory, and, and, then, and then at the five o'clock hour, he would come back and he would say, and now the rest of the story. And then he would tell the rest of the story and he would, he would like talk about some famous person and like, he would drop that name or he would say this, this historical event. And now you're like, no way, I had no idea that this famous person that we all know, actually that that's their backstory, that's how they got here, that's what was really going on in their life when they became famous or had this big event in their life. And I remember listening to that with my dad and, uh, and we would we'd be like, oh, no way, that's crazy, you know, and so. It's a great story. Well, we find ourselves today in Jonah chapter four. And, uh, and today we get to find out the rest of the story. And uh, every week we've been reading Jonah and, and, and you've been reading along. And we'll do that again here today. And, and every week as we read and as we look at this book of the Bible, um, there's been some things about Jonah all along. You're like, what's wrong with this guy? Like what's going on beneath the surface? And what's, what's really happening in his heart uh, that makes him say these things and do these things? And we've been talking about that from week to week, but now today we get to find out the rest of the story. And so we're gonna do the same thing we've done each week um, and give you a chance to read this, this passage of scripture. It's, uh, it's only 11 verses. And so we're gonna give you two minutes and uh, in the comfort of you, between you and your own head and God and the Bible, um, to read through this. And so I encourage you to pull out your copy of scripture, bring along a pen, maybe a piece of paper, write down some questions, highlight some stuff that stands out to you. If you haven't downloaded the Bible app yet, uh, you should do that right now and you can read along. We'll give you two minutes and read Jonah chapter four. Go for it.
All right, well, I hope, that, uh, I hope that those 11 verses began to shed some light on who this Jonah character is really. And uh, maybe you've decided, I really don't like this guy. And maybe you're like, man, I really identify with this guy. Maybe you just got big questions like, that was a weird ending. That was a weird ending to a book of the Bible. Um, I get it. So uh, we're going to dive in. We're going to look at Jonah chapter 4 today. We have been on a roller coaster ride with this guy uh, for the last three weeks. And so um, where we find ourselves today, I hope, can shed some light. And, uh, and every, each week we've said, as we read the Bible, and this is true anytime you read the Bible, but uh, you get to learn some stuff. And uh, it is our hope that when we read the Bible, we hear from God, that God will speak to us as we read His Word. And so when we come to, come to a, a passage of Scripture like this, we expect to hear from God, and we expect for Him to teach us. We expect for Him to teach us about Himself, that through this story and what we see God do and how He interacts with people and creation and, and mankind, uh, we learn about who God is. And we also learn about the characters in the story. So in this one, we learn a lot about Jonah. He's been the main character here. We've learned a lot about him. We learn a lot about him today. And then as we look at those things about who God is, about the characters in the story, we have to learn about ourselves as well. And, uh, and it's, it's after we learn about what's going on there, to then see ourselves and identify with the characters or see ourselves and how we have related to God and learn about this. And so that does not stop here today. And though we may not want to do it, uh, I think we'll find ourselves identifying with Jonah again this week. So we're going to go back, and I actually want to start in verse uh, chapter uh, chapter three, verse ten, um, which is what four one references. And so just so we get a full picture of what's going on, uh, chapter three, verse ten says this: When God saw what they did, talking about the Ninevites and them repenting in chapter three, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction. He had threatened. Good news, good news for the Ninevites. 4 verse 1, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. What is going on, Joe? <laughs> what are you thinking? We began to process. Why are you angry? This seems weird. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. Oh, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, I knew that you are, a, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Oh, just the worst characteristics about God, right? <laughs> so weird. Verse 3, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Whoa, Jonah. <laughs> is, that, is that right? Should you be asking that? Is that really what you should be saying at this moment? And we began to just process, why are you like this, Jonah? What's going on? Why are you mad about one of God's greatest attributes, his loving kindness, his being slow to anger? What's going on? What's going on with you? Jesus, or sorry, God asked the same question in verse four, but the Lord replied, uh, is it right for you to be angry? Verse, uh, verse five, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. So he's finding himself camped out outside the city. He's like, all right, I'm hoping. Maybe the Ninevites will still screw this thing up. Maybe their repentance won't be real. Maybe they'll still find some way to make God mad. And just maybe, maybe God will smite them. <laughs> so, so Jonah's sitting out here just waiting for, you know, like lightning to come down from heaven, waiting for, you know, God to nuke the city or something. And uh, that's what he's hoping for. Verse six. So then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about that plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided. God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, Oh, it would be better for me to die than to live. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. So Jonah is out here in the desert and he is done. He is done like a turkey on Thanksgiving. He is roasted, he is hot, and he is so mad about everything that is happening. And he's ready to give up. He tried to run from God, but God brought him back. And so he obeyed and went to Nineveh and he tried to get away. Uh, um, but, but God tried to get his way, but God relented and had mercy on the Ninevites. And now he's just mad that he lost his shade. And, uh, and he's very uncomfortable. 
and he's not sure what, if he even wants to live at this point. Verse 10, big finish. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. So God says, this wasn't even your plant. I provided it. I took it away. Why are you so possessive? Uh, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Just a little tidbit there about animals. I, it's a weird ending. I get it. So we see Jonah out here, and he's, he's mad, and he is, he is angry. And we, see, we see God end with this question. We'll come back to that later, but he ends with this question. It's a question for all of us. Uh, a few, few tidbits, commentary on this. S some commentators, some scholars say that that comment of like there's 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left. Some say that's a reference to how many children are in the city. You know, kids before they understand like, wait, this is my left hand. This is my, oh, the L that's left. Yeah. Before you learn that trick, you're like, hey, what's my right and left? So it could be saying there's 120,000 kids in this city and you don't have mercy or don't, you're not worried about them. Uh, plus there's all those animals too. Uh, and so he's saying, hey, where, do you, where is your heart at? He's beginning to really dig into Jonah and where what he's finding is most important. So here we have this, this action-packed conclusion to the book of Jonah. And it's this, this cliffhanger of a moment, ending on this, this, this vague question. And so we come back to the, what are we looking for in this? And, and what, are we, what are we to learn about God from Jonah chapter 4? And what do we learn about Jonah from, from, from Jonah chapter 4? And what do we learn about ourselves? Well, I will summarize uh, that the book of Jonah, and especially um, chapter four, is about three things. It's about three things, and I'll just tell you where we're going. It's about mission, it's about race, and it's about grace. It's about mission, it's about race, and it's about grace. Number one, mission. Uh, we talked about this a lot last week. Chris covered this, and um, it, it said that uh, the book, this book shows that God is a missionary God. Jonah is a great book about God's mission. God is a missionary God who seeks to save the lost, as Jesus put it. And he goes to find those that are lost and, and, and make them found and bring them home and bring them from far off to bring them close, from being estranged to being an intimate relationship. God pursues his people. God uses us to be a part of that mission. And that's the beautiful part of this is you see his invitation to Jonah here saying, hey, I could do this on my own, but I want you to be a part of it. I want you as a representative to Israel to go to the people of Nineveh, to go and call them to repentance. God uses us to go and bring the message of good news and to call people to repentance. We get to be a part of, God, of accomplishing God's mission. Something we say often here and resonate is that God has a mission and God has a church to accomplish that mission. Sometimes we, we can get wrapped up in our community and our programs and our routines as a church and the things we do together, that that's the point is just to do it together, uh, to be together, to do these things. But really the point, going all back to the, the book of Acts at the beginning of, church, of the church is he had a purpose to go and seek and save the lost. And then he created people to accomplish that purpose. And so that's who our God is. And this view of God is, is, the, is, is so important to us. It, is, it should be your understanding of who God is, that He is a missional God, that He is on a mission. We see it again throughout this, that, that God pursued Jonah. He pursues the sailors on the boat. He pursues the Ninevites. Uh, God is a, is a missionary God, and He goes to seek and save the lost. So we've covered that a lot, and we've spent a lot of time talking about that. But the second one is something that definitely is highlighted here in Jonah chapter 4. Race. Race. This book is about nationalism. This book is about Jonah's racism. He loves Israel and he hates the Ninevites. He loves his own and he hates the nations. Now, we need to remember who Jonah is. Jonah is a prophet. He's a prophet who's an Israelite. And, and the, the role of the prophets in the Old Testament were to hear the voice of God and speak what God says to the people. And so there's a, there's a bunch of books in the Old Testament of names you haven't ever heard of before. So all surrounding Jonah here that you've been reading the past couple weeks. And all of these guys were prophets. And they would speak, they would hear from God and speak on behalf of God to the people. And so a lot of times they would come and they would, they would say things that, uh, quite frankly, were offensive. Um, that were corrective words to the people of Israel. 
to God's people. They would speak to them and say, you're doing it wrong. You need to do it better. You need to, to turn from your evil ways. You need to turn from uh, these other gods. You need to turn from doing it the way that all the nations around you are doing it. Instead, you need to do it the way that I've called you to do it. And so the, the prophets would say these things, and oftentimes they got them in, in trouble. Uh, the people would say, we don't like what you're telling us. We don't like that you're telling us we're doing it wrong, as none of us do. And some of them lost their lives because of that. Well, Jonah was a little different. Um, the biblical record of Jonah's prophetic uh, um, life and, and what he did as, as a prophet, um, there's only one other recorded prophecy outside of the book of Jonah that, that, that Jonah took part in. And it's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And, and that prophecy was that Jonah said, hey, Israel, um, we're, going, we're going to gain more land. There's some land that we lost, but under this king, we're going to have a military conquest and regain that land and, and expand our borders, which that was a pretty cool prophecy to get to make. Uh, if you got to tell people, the people of your nation, hey, I heard from God that we're going to win. And you're like, everybody's like, great, Jonah. We love it when you bring us news from God. High fives all around. Thanks for being here. You're the best prophet ever. So you can imagine if that was you or, or if that's Jonah's reputation at, back home, like he was the prophet everybody likes. Not like those other prophets who are always bringing bad news. Uh, he was the prophet who was bringing good news. And we love to hear from him because he's all about, hey, we're going to expand our territories and uh, it's going to be wonderful. That was Jonah's experience. And, and you can go back to even thinking about his, his wrestling with the call of God initially, like, Whoa, 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 I've got a good reputation among these people. I'm a national hero. Uh, if I go to the, our enemies, the Ninevites, if I go to Assyria and you know, preach the word to them, call them to repentance, my people are going to hate me for that. Uh, if I go and help the enemy, that's going to be not good for me. So you begin to put this, this understanding of who Jonah was, this national hero. He was very nationalistic. And that's potentially a hot-button word in our, in our day and age. Uh, so you see that this isn't something that's new to us in, in 20, uh, 2022. But um, if you just go in a quick Google definition of national, what it means to be nationalistic, uh, nationalism, having, an ex having or expressing strong identification with one's own nation and vigorous support for its interests, especially in the execution especially to the ex exclusion, sorry, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interest of other nations. So that's exactly what, what Jonah's experiencing. He says, I care more about my nation than I do about these other nations. I care about my nation so much that I'm willing to forsake or uh, to the detriment of these surrounding nations, um, not act on their behalf. Or even when I do it, I'm going to preach to them, but I'm going to do a really poor job of it, as we saw in chapter three. So Jonah is we recognize, hey, he is, he loves his country, which as I, even as I talk about nationalism, don't get me wrong, it's okay to love the country you're from. But as we get into, you can take that too far. There's, this reality unveils a deep-seated issue in Jonah's life, a deep-seated issue. And that issue is idolatry. Jonah is an idolater. He has an idolatry issue. Here's what I mean by that. Typically, when you read about idolatry, especially in the Old Testament, the, the common issue that's brought up is, is usually because a lot of the nations and the other people groups around Israel, they would build these idols, statues of some sort, and then they would bow down and worship these statues. Uh, it's not as common in our, in our world today, certainly not in America, but it still happens in some places. Um, but it was very common in Old Testament times. So, Usually it's, it's involved, again, worshiping a created image or a created statue of some sort um, that represents their God, their lowercase g God. Um, it's in the Big Ten, the Big Ten Commandments of things you shouldn't do. You shouldn't worship idols, it says right there uh, in the Big Ten. Um, but you may ask the question, well, where, where are the idols in this story? I don't see Jonah bowing down before a statue. And you're right, that, that's not the case. And, and, and really the broader perspective of idolatry in, in the, throughout the Bible is this understanding of like, we are all capable of idolatry. So let me give you a better understanding, a better definition of what idolatry is. Idolatry is building your identity on something other than God. Idolatry is building your identity on something other than God. Or if I could say that another way, idolatry is loving something more than God. And that's why it's, that's why it's a 10 commandment, a thing you shouldn't do, to love something else more than you love God. 
Jonah's idol is that he loves his racial identity. Jonah's idol is that he, his nationality is more to him. He loves it more than God. And we see that by the way he acts. That by his actions, it's clear that I'm more concerned about my, my identity that's wrapped up in where I'm from than I am about that I am concerned about what God's concerned about. Now, we all have an identity, and we spend our life creating identity for ourselves. Um, it, it's this, it's how we see ourselves. How do I see myself? Um, this is this internal dialogue that we all have going on. Essentially, we say this sentence in some form or fashion. We say, I have worth because, and then you fill in the blank. I have worth because, Jonah would fill that in with, because I'm an Israelite. I have worth because I'm an Israelite. I think I'm better than others because of who I am and where I'm from. The Ninevites threaten his identity because they were a superpower in the, in the region, because they were intimidating, because everyone in that region at that time knew who the Assyrians were, knew who the people were from, uh, from Nineveh. Their reputation and their brutality towards the, the other nations, how they had conquered other nations and grown in size and in power uh, during these years, um, that threatened Israel. And because of that, that threatened Jonah's identity. So much so that he hates them. Now, there are other prophets at this time who were prophesying that said, hey, one day, the prophets Hosea, prophets Amos, they have books back there as well in the Old Testament. They were saying that one day, God is going to use the Assyrians to bring judgment on Israel for their disobedience. Jonah knows this. He's like, hey, if I can thwart that by you know, making sure that they don't repent, making sure that God destroys them before that happens, then I can take matters into my own hands and save my country and save my people and save what's most important to me. Now, at this point, we have to check ourselves. We, we can look at Jonah and we can go like, oh, he's the worst. And we began to think through all the stuff uh, that he's saying in this book of the Bible. And we can look at things that people, that people are saying in our country even today and say, oh, it's the worst. That's the worst. I hate, I hate people like that. But we have to check ourselves in this moment. Again, we're trying to learn about who God is. We get to learn who Jonah is. And we have to ask the question of who am I in light of this? So what is, um, what is it that, we've, that you find your identity in? When you look at what Jonah's finding his identity in, you have to begin to turn, in, turn inward and say, what am I finding my identity in? Am I like Jonah in this? Maybe you say, like, oh, I'm not nationalistic. I, I'm not racist. I, that's not me. Um, but maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something similar. If we were to say, am I an idolater? <laughs> what am I finding my identity in? It's often that what you have had success in or what people compliment you for, that's what you find your identity in. Often we gravitate towards the things that we've had success in. It's like, wow, I was really good at that. I'm the one who's good at that. I'm good at that. People say that I'm, I'm good at that. Or they like it when I do this thing. So then when someone comes along and they're better at that thing than you, turns out they're smarter than you or they're faster than you or they're more good looking or they command attention in the room or whatever it is, uh, you get mad at that person when, they, when, they, when you find out they're better at you because they're challenging your identity. When someone is better at you, they, you, it's easy for you to turn to hate because they're challenging your identity. Or uh, you may be able to recognize your identity like this. Likely, you'll have unforgiveness towards others about that thing. You've been hurt in some way, and now it's really hard for you to forgive them because of what they did to you, because it affected your identity. It was so close that that hurt, that pain, that scar is so deep that it's, it's very difficult for you to, un, for you to forgive them. Where do you have unforgiveness in your life and in your heart? Likely there, connected to that in some way, you'll discover what you have your identity tied to. When someone threatens your identity, you hold a grudge. Bitterness begins to build, in your, build up in you. Then that leads to jealousy. And then you'll find yourself just like Jonah with hatred towards them because they have stolen part of your identity. Another way you can identify what you have your identity in is um, what is the person or what are the people you care most about? So think about the people that you care most about, that are most important to you, the person or the people in your life that you care most about. Um, what do they think about you? What, do that, what is that person, what is that group of people, what do they think about you? Likely, you're prone to build your identity on that thing. People you care most about, 
What they think about you is what you build your identity on. So for instance, if, you're, if you care about what your parents think about, they're, maybe they're proud of your scholastic achievements, then you begin to find your identity in your grades. My mom and dad love that I make good grades. I, have, I find my worth in my parents' eyes by, by how good I'm doing in school. So now your identity begins to be tied to those things. Subsequently, if, uh, if you get a bad grade, you have a rough semester, and your, your grades begin to dip or plummet, um, man, it, it will wreck you. Because I had my identity so tied in this thing, this success, this achievement, that if I don't have that, who am I anymore? Or maybe it's like just something simple. It's like there's a guy or a girl that you like, you got it, you're crushing on, right? And, uh, and then they, they pay you a compliment. They say, hey, I like that shirt. And now that is your favorite shirt. <laughs> your roommate's like, hey, can I borrow that shirt? It's like, no, this is my favorite shirt because someone said they liked it. And now my identity is tied to that person and to that shirt and what they think of me, right? Or to say it a different way, um, you, may have a, you may be in a dating relationship, maybe a friendship, um, and someone communicates to you, the way, I like the way you make me feel. I like the way you make me feel. There's a, at first, that sounds really rom- romantic, and they're communicating something deep and intimate. I like the way you make me feel. But ultimately, that's a pretty selfish statement of theirs. Like, you, I use you to make me feel this way. And so if we tie our identity to that thing, what you're saying is like, um, making you feel a certain way is who I am. And you can begin to see how that can start to get twisted. The trouble is when our identity is built on a person other than God, when our identity is built on a person other than God, it puts us in dangerous in a dangerous place to be used by that person or those people. When I care more about what you think about me than what God thinks about me, now I'm in a dangerous place where I can find myself giving myself to you, being used by you uh, or by this group of people um, in, an, in unhealthy ways. And so we can see that what we put our identity in is dangerous. When our idolatry uh, leads you to lose sight of what is most important to you, your idols betray you. When you lose sight of what's most important, and I'll tell you what that is, what God thinks of you, then you recognize you found your identity in something else. You You found your identity in an idol. When you rest in the fact that God is loving and good and he loves you and wants you and is pursuing you, then the things of this world lose their grip on our identity. When we run to God and we recognize God is the best thing in all the world, in all the universe, that he is perfect, unlike all of this other stuff, unlike all of these other people, unlike all of these things I can be successful in, uh, they will always fail me. They can't live up, live up to my expectations, but God always can. God is good. And even when I'm not, he's still good. And he clarifies for me what good is, what loving looks like. He's the best. God is the best. And so when I find my identity tied to him, that's the safest and best place to find my identity. So to find my identity, anything else, that's why it's called idolatry. To worship something else, to love something else more than God, that's idolatry. To turn my my attention uh, and my affection towards anything other than God is idolatry. And it's a dangerous place to be. God says, don't do that. That's not good for you. It's not best for you. We are able to identify ourselves as sons or daughters of God and care most about what he thinks. Then the controlling desires that others have for us no longer dominate our lives. If I can give myself over to God, then how I make you feel is nice, but it's not what's most important to me. Or what you think of me or what I... uh, what you find value in me from is not what's most important to me. When we make our idols our God, when we make our idols our God, then we lose ourselves to something that is imperfect and can never live up to our greatest needs and desires. Only the one true God can do that. A pastor that I was listening to and reading a sermon on this passage, he says this, idols, his name is J.D. Greer, and he's a pastor in North Carolina. He says this, idols are things we deserve uh, we, we derive pleasure from more than God. Idol, idols are things we derive pleasure from more than God, things we seek refuge in more than God. So your idol could be a relationship. could be a relationship that you are in right now, that that has become an idolatrous relationship because it's more important to you than God. You find refuge in that relationship more than you find it in God. It could just be the idea of a relationship. It could be the fantasy of marriage that in your life is what you run to and cling to more than God. It could be sex. 
It could be the uh, physical relationship or fulfilling that desire in your life. It could be money. Huge issue for us in America today. We, I, I, the idolatry of money. It could be substances, something we run to to find comfort or find pleasure in. It could be some mixture of success and power and influence. I have influence, I have success, I have power, and I want more of it. This is where I find my, uh, my pleasure or find my refuge. Or it could be like Jonah. It could be where you're from. It could be your race. Or it could be simply a, a group you're a part of. And it's a large group, like a nationality. Maybe it's a small group, like a club you're a part of. It could even be your church. Your church could be an idol. Resonate Church could be your idol, that you care more about what your church thinks about you than what God thinks about you. You care more about what the little social spheres that you operate in and pleasing people to get their attention and make them like you than you care about what God actually thinks about you. It's possible. It's twisted, but it's possible. So to go back and say, what are those things? Again, I would say, what is your hatred? What is your unforgiveness? What is your bitterness? What is your jealousy? What are the things that you see in Jonah in, in Jonah chapter 4? How do these things reveal to you your idols? And again, maybe it's, maybe it's a, a nationalistic tendency like Jonah. Maybe it's something else. But they're there. We're building our identity on them. We're loving them more than God. And in Jonah chapter 4, God is saying, those things can't come before me. And that leads us to the third thing, grace. Grace. I want to read verse 10 and 11 one more time, just so you get this, this final question that, that God asks Jonah. And so this lands and helps us process what it is God wants us to get out of this. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this little plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from their left, as well as many animals. Jonah was worried about a plant. Some translations, may, your translation may say a little plant. In the Hebrew, it's, it references the littleness of the plant is juxtaposed against the greatness of the city of Nineveh. Jonah was worried about a plant and God is concerned about a people. Jonah would argue, but they're bad people. Everybody knows it. The Assyrians, the people of Nineveh, they are bad people. And God would say, that's the only kind of people I know. <laughs> That's the only kind of people I know. When we read the book of Jonah, though it is uncomfortable, we have, to, we have to be able to say, I see myself in this story. You have to be able to read the book of Jonah, especially uh, Jonah 1 and Jonah 4, and say, I am Jonah. I am Jonah. And you also read the book of, of, of Jonah, and you say, I am Nineveh. I am Nineveh. I need someone to come to me and share with me good news. I need someone to come to me and rescue me. I need someone to come to me and call me to repentance, to turn me out of my wicked ways and turn me back to God's ways. Jonah and Nineveh, though Jonah doesn't see it, they are not so different. God would say, that's the only kind of people I know, bad people. And this brings us to the topic of grace. Grace. The short definition for grace is unmerited favor from God. You should write that down. You should open up the, your Bible and write it on the inside cover. Grace, unmerited favor from God. You didn't earn it, but God likes you. God loves you. God pursues you. God wants you. Why? Because he does. Because it's who he is. Not because you're great. Not because you're wonderful. Not because you're good looking. Not because you're above average. All of us, all have gone astray. All have, have strayed from God's ways. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as the book of Romans says. God loves us. God chooses us, even though we don't deserve it. In spite of our brokenness and disobedience, our running from God, God pursues us. And He provides a way out of our rebellion so that we can return to Him and know Him and have life, eternal life in Him. Not because we earned it, but because He is good because he is loving. The overarching message of the book of Jonah is that we all need God's grace. That's, that's the overarching message, we all need it. The guy who speaks on behalf of God and the foreign nation that's far from God in all their ways and in all their wickedness. All of us, all of us are in need of God's grace. 
The irony for Jonah is that he appreciates God's grace towards him, you know, saving him from uh, drowning at the bottom of the ocean uh, by providing that fish to swallow him and, uh, and, and bring him out of that terrible situation. Uh, he's thankful for God's grace in that. We read about it in chapter 2. But he hates God's grace for the people of Nineveh. He likes it for himself. He hates it for others. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> Trouble is, to quote Jonah, God is, gracious and, God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. God loves people, and He loves all kinds of people, even the ones that we don't like. That's a reality of who our God is. This message of God's grace is especially for people like Jonah, who think that they don't need God's grace. The Bible talks to this group of people a lot. Throughout the Old Testament, some of Jesus' uh, strongest sermons are to this group of people. The Bible calls them religious people. There's a, there's a special category, a special message for people that God speaks to them, and it's, it's to this group called religious people. The key trait of religious people is that they compare themselves to others, and by their own standards, they think they're doing all right. They get themselves into this religious routines and these religious rules. And instead of allowing the rules to point them to God, which is the point of the law, which is the point of the rules in the first place, to point them to God in God's ways and the best way. Instead of allowing those things to point them to God, they, they allow those things to puff them up and say, look at all that I've done. Look at how I can check all the boxes of how good I am. And in doing that, they forget that they need God's grace because they begin to play this comparison game. Religious people compare themselves to others, and by their own standards, they think that they are doing all right. Jonah thinks that he's so much, uh, thinks that the Ninevites are so much worse than him because he thinks to himself, well, I've never been as brutal as them. I've never been a part of a society that does stuff like what they do. I've never skinned anyone, which they were uh, accustomed to doing when they would invade a country. I've never uh, cut off someone's limb and, and been so brutal to them like the Ninevites were uh, rumored to have done. And he said, I never did those things. I'm, I'm one of God's people. I'm not like them. Jesus would regularly tell stories because he was regularly interacting with religious people. And he would tell stories like he did in, in Luke chapter 10. There's a story called the Good Samaritan. Maybe you're familiar with it. You've heard this story. We reference it all throughout our culture and society even to today. The Good Samaritan is a story of, uh, he's actually Jesus interacting with a religious person. And this religious person says, hey, what do I need to be, do to be saved? What do I need to do? To, to essentially get the approval of God. And, God. and Jesus says, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is a lot like it. Love others. Love your neighbor. Well, then the guy fires back in, there in Luke chapter 10. He says, well, who's my neighbor? So Jesus says, let me tell you a story. There's a guy and he's out on a road and he gets mugged. And he gets beat up and he's half dead, thrown in the ditch. And, uh, and then along soon after that comes a religious person. And twice, religious people, people who you're reading the story, is like, oh, those are the good guys. Those are the guys who do it right. Those are the guys who have their life together. Those are those guys. These are the guys that God loves. They come along and they see the guy lying in the ditch and they're like, ah, I, I got somewhere to be. I got to go. Or, ah, this is going to get messy. This, I'm going to pretend like I didn't see that guy there. And they just keep on going. And then it says a third guy comes along. And this guy was a Samaritan. Now, there's some context here, but it's a racial divide in ancient Israel between Israelites the Jewish people uh, in Jesus' day, and Samaritans. Uh, the Jewish people saw Samaritans as mm, mudbloods, if you will, half-breeds, people who, who uh, deviated from the people of Israel long ago, and they kind of created their own religion that's just this offshoot, a little bit different than, than traditional um, um, Judaism as the Old Testament is taught. And, uh, and so the Jewish people hated them. They said they're not, they're not real believers, not real followers of God. And so there was this racial divide, and they would criticize each other and have prejudice against each other. Well, that's the guy that comes along third. After these good religious Jewish people pass by, this guy in the ditch, then the Samaritan comes along, and he sees the guy in the ditch, and he, he pulls him out of there and, and, and doctors his wounds and puts him on his own donkey and carries him to a hotel and pays for him to stay there and, and gives, essentially opens up a, an account and says, hey, whatever it takes to keep this guy alive, whatever he needs, uh, take, I'll take care of it. And he leaves and he comes back and he cares for this guy. He just tells a story and he looks at the religious person and says, all right, who was the neighbor in that story? And essentially you read in Luke 10, the guy couldn't even say that it was the Samaritan. He just says, it was the third guy. I, I, <laughs> I can't even say what he was. 
It was the third guy. Jesus told that story to clarify like, hey, we're all in the same boat here. We all have issues. We all are not as good as we think we are. It's, it's the same story that we see throughout this. The good guys in this, the people who are seen as uh, those who are closer to God are the ones you don't expect in the book of Jonah. Jonah, the man who hears from God, is running from him, while the guys on the boat, the sailors who are far, far from him, are the ones who are turning and worshiping the Lord. The Ninevites, who are so far from God, they're the ones who are repenting. And here's Jonah out in the desert mad about it. As we read through this, this story, um, and we come to chapter four, the book ends on this cliffhanger question where, where God asks Jonah, you're worried about a little plant and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Why do you have so much passion, he's saying, for things that don't matter and so little passion for things that actually do? That's ultimately the question that God is asking. God's asking that question because God loves people. God loves people. God loves all kinds of people even the ones we don't like. God loves people and he calls us to love people like he loves them. And that begs the question for us even today as we're trying to say, God, what are you saying to me right now? And I'll tell you that question. The question is, do you love people like God or uh, even loving your enemies? Or are you selective in who you love like Jonah was? Do you love people like God? Do you love all kinds of people? Or are you selective in who you love? Are you more concerned with yourself and your personal comfort like Jonah was? Or are you more concerned about real, live people? I invite you to get to know God and to let Him change what you love. To pray for God to change your heart. Maybe you find yourself you're like, I'm a religious person. I go through the motions. I can check the boxes. I go to the things when I'm supposed to be there. I say the right things when I'm supposed to say them. But I don't love people like God loves people. I don't understand love in this magnitude. I don't understand. I, 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 I can kind of love the people I like and the people that I get along with and the people that benefit me. But the people that are difficult, the people that are hard to be around, the people that challenge my identity, I don't love them. Is that true of you? There's something that happens in a believer's life when they come to a place of maturity, when they begin to see things the way God sees them when they begin to love the things that God loves. Their relationship with God, their, their Christianity, their religion moves from a place of duty. I know this is what I should do, so I'm going to do it because this is what I should do. A place of duty to they move to a place of compulsion where they do the things they should do, not because they should do them, but because they can't help but do them. They can't not do them. They are compelled. They have a passion for the things that God is passionate about. They want to do the things that God wants to do. They find themselves in alignment with God's ways. There's an invitation to us here at the end of the book of Jonah for us to do that. I remember when this first began to happen in my life, it was a, it was a huge moment in my life. It happened when I was in college. I had the opportunity to spend my summer in another country. I spent my summer between my sophomore and junior year in, uh, in Vietnam, in Southeast Asia. And, and I was there, we, we went there to do mission work and we were working alongside these missionaries in that country. Uh, they don't allow missionaries, you can't go in on a missionary visa, but we could go in on kind of a humanitarian aid visa. And we were doing this agricultural ministry where we were helping farmers out in these rural areas learn some different agricultural practices so they could improve their life, uh, their lifestyle and improve the soils they were using. It was, it was a wonderful project we were part of and through that building relationships and getting to share the gospel through it. Well, we went there and my, my eye was just, my mind was just blown by God's creation as I found myself on the other side of the world in a culture that was so different than mine uh, as a young man growing up in East Texas, uh, so different. And what happened throughout that summer is God began to change my mind, began to change my heart, began to change what I was into, began to change the way I saw things. I remember this one experience every day we'd wake up and we'd, we'd, eat, uh, we'd eat pho for breakfast, this hot noodle soup while it's 90 degrees outside with 90% humidity. It was crazy. So we'd eat pho for breakfast and then we'd get in a car and we had a, a driver, three of us Americans, and we'd uh, pile into this little Toyota Corolla and we'd drive out on these muddy dirt roads and uh, this guy uh, named Mr. Nyet would take us out there and he would drive us out to the farm where we'd work and work with our friends. And, uh, we drive out there and I remember one day, um, it was a few weeks into it and we we're all a bit homesick and, uh, we had this moment, I, I'm not real proud of it, but we, we began to sing the, the national anthem 
And uh, we were singing at the top of our lungs, and Mr. Nyet was like, what in the world is happening in my car right now as these Americans are singing this song? And uh, it might have been a moment of nationalism there, or it was just I miss home probably was part of it. Um, we, we drove out there, and I remember that moment of like, I, I, was, I was concerned about the things that I missed. I was concerned about how being here in this foreign place uh, was uncomfortable, it was hot, and we were crammed into this car, going out to this uh, place out in the sticks and uh, everything was foreign and I just wanted a bowl of uh, shredded wheat, um, <laughs> frosted shredded wheat, that's my jam right there. And, uh, and I, that's what I wanted and I, I was missing it. But as the summer went on and, and we actually, uh, a couple weeks later, like our friendship with Mr. Nyet, we were out for a walk one night after uh, uh, it, it had been raining and it cleared off and um, we were walking down the uh, through the middle of town and we'd had hamburgers and french fries. There was just one store in town that would, would serve that. And Mr. Nyuk came along and in that culture and that society, it's normal for men to hold hands as a sign of friendship and affection. Uh, and so he came up and held my hand and I was super uncomfortable. But I realized like something was happening in this relationship with this guy. They're like, hey, actually, this is what we came here is to build relationships with people. And I was like, what is happening in me? What is happening right here in this moment? Later on that summer, we were on a trip down uh, in the southern part of the country, and we were bumping along in this in the back of this bus. And, and all summer long, God has been working on me and changing my heart towards this people group. I began to go from like, hey, I'm going on this adventure once uh, during this summer uh, in my college years to I'm, I'm here, and God is teaching me so much about who I am. Uh, he's, he's stripping me of these things of my comforts, these things that I, that I hold dear to me, uh, and instead showing me something that's so much greater to see things and love things that he loves. And we find ourselves bumping along in this, in this long bus. We were sitting all the way in the back and there were, it was overcrowded and there were chickens and crates and way too many people and it smelled bad. And we were on the back of this bus going along on this dirt road and these country roads in Southern Vietnam. And uh, I remember in that moment, it was like the Holy Spirit met me right there in the back of that bus and, uh, and said, Matthew, do you see, do you see these people? And I had this image like, what if, what if this bus were to careen off the road and we fly into the ditch and everybody dies? And I had this moment of like, that would be the worst thing, not for me, but for them. That would be the worst thing. And I found my heart breaking for them, knowing that uh, in this country, it was hard to hear the gospel, that there were the missionaries weren't allowed in, the, the government controlled the spread of, of religious groups in the, in the country. And these people were desperate to hear the good news of who Jesus was, of this God who loves them, is in pursuit of them, and wants to bring them close. And my heart was breaking for them. At the end of the summer, we went back and flew back to the States, and we had about another week uh, before the summer was over, we spent in the suburbs of, of Dallas, Texas. And uh, we were doing some like door-to-door -door evangelism and uh, neighborhood service with this church that we were working with. And um, I remember going, and I, the lostness that I saw in Vietnam, my heart breaking for this people. I remember going into these neighborhoods in Dallas, these suburbs of Dallas, and, I, and we'd knock on doors and these people would come to me and they're like me, they're fellow Americans, and yet I saw, we had conversations with them, I began to see the same losses that I saw on the other side of the world in these people that had always been so familiar to me. And then at the end of that summer, I went back to campus and went into my junior year of school that year. And the same thing began to happen. As I walked the campus that fall, I began to see that my mind and my heart was changing and began to see things the way God saw them. I no longer saw my classmates as just somebody else who was there that maybe I could get some help on uh, these math problems or I could borrow their notes, people I could use. But instead, I began to see them as people that God loved. And that, that changed me. That changed the way I interacted with my friends. It changed the way I interacted with strangers. And God began to change my heart. I want you to know that just like at the end of this book, as God asked that question, there's an invitation to Jonah and there's an invitation to you here today. God is saying to you, do you want to love like I love? Do you want to see things the way I see them? Stop worrying about your comforts. Stop worrying about yourself and start worrying about what I'm worried about. The people of this great city, these people that are far from me, they need someone. I'm slow to anger and abounding in love and I want to rescue. I'm a missionary God. Will you be my missionary people? The invitation is available to you here today. Pray that God would do this work in you. Pray that God would do this work in us as a church. May it impact our campus. May it impact our cities. May it change ourselves. May it change the world around us. The, the world is desperate for us to be who God has called us to be. I think that Jonah gets it.
We don't know exactly what happens after this. Again, cliffhanger ending. But the fact that we get this book, it means that Jonah told this story. A great, uh, a great clue that you're getting it is when you see that you're willing to share the dark side of yourself, just like Jonah did. If Jonah went back home eventually and he tells a story, and either he writes it down or someone else writes down his story, and you read through this and Jonah doesn't look good. If you're willing to humble yourself and say, look, I am broken. I am not a good person, but God is good. If you're willing to say that I'm not good, but God is, that's a great sign that God is at work in your life. And he's transforming you. Be more and more like him, bringing him in alignment with his ways. May, we, may that be true of us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you do not abandon us to our broken ways. You will come and rescue us from the bottom of the ocean. You will send someone from another place to come and call us to repentance. And God, you will not let us stay in our religious idolatry. You will not let us stay there, but you will call us out of it. You will call us to die to self and to love one another. God, may that be true of us in Resonate Church. Do your work in us now. Change our hearts. Make us more like you. For your glory and for our good. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.